Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Bridesmaids, best friends and family brunch. Ah yes, there's nothing quite like a wedding to bring people together and then to rip them apart. In her debut novel, The Way Things Should Be, journalist Bridie Jabour has crafted a darkly funny account of modern sibling rivalries while questioning what marriage really means in a society that seems to have given up on the millennial generation. Hello, Brandy. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Explain to me why you spent most of your teen years walking around suggesting that marriage is an empty institution. Well, and I used to walk around saying it was an empty constitution. (laughs) Which is even better because it's just... Because I'd misheard someone say, obviously when I was a a lot younger, I'd misheard someone say it was an empty institution and I thought that it sounded so clever. And so as most teenagers do, stole it and branded it as my own, pretended it was my own original thoughts and that it made me sound very clever. And it wasn't until I was about, I think maybe 18, that I realised it should be empty institution. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You've actually written recently in the launch of this book that, you know, um, that marriage might actually be a supreme act of optimism. Why, why do you think that? I definitely think in 2018 it's a supreme act of optimism because it's not so expected now. You can, it, it's not, you don't have to do it now really. Like obviously there are societal expectations that adults will get married, but it's not the same as 50 years ago where if you wanted to live with someone else you had to be married. Or if you weren't married by, say, age 25, then you would be seen as an old maid and put on the shelf. So these, you don't have to get married. You can just live with your partner. So to make that decision, I think it's very optimistic to say, I'm going to be with this person for the rest of my life and I'm going to stand up in front of 150 of my closest friends and family and say I love them and I think that this can work despite Loads of marriages around me falling apart. Lots of millennials, half millennials, their parents would be divorced. They would have seen marriages fail. They would see how difficult it can be. And still they, they decided to take the leap. So I, I think it is a supreme act of optimism to well, marry someone. Well, you're a millennial and you've chosen to get married. So how did that inform the writing of the book and some of the attitudes of, of Claudia, the main you know, protagonist within the book? Well, so I got married two years ago two and a half years ago. And when we decided to get married, there was no big proposal. My husband and I did decide together to get married. Well, actually we were bullied into it by my mother. (laughs) But we decided to get married and I hadn't thought that much about marriage. And after we got engaged, it brought up a lot of really interesting emotions that I didn't think it would. And I was very surprised by them. Now my parents are split up and my husband's parents are still together. I think it's 47 years and they're a lovely happy married couple but my husband was so just happy to be getting married and I don't think thought about it much further than that whereas I started thinking more about what if this doesn't work are we really going to be together forever what does marriage mean also what does it I'm a young feminist woman what does that what does it mean as a young feminist woman to get married am I just doing this because societal expectations is this an old and empty institution and so I spent the year thinking a lot about all of these questions as well as being very excited about my wedding, got married. It was the best day, beyond the best day. But still, I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting 
what I thought during that time and, and the questions I'd grappled with. And when I spoke to my friends about it, I found that a lot of my particularly female friends had grappled with the same issues. It seemed a lot of the men didn't think overthink it too much. They were all just happy to be get. They were in love and they were happy to be getting married and they didn't think much more beyond that. Some of them did, but not many. And uh, But a lot of young millennial women I found were having these questions and so I thought it was a really interesting topic to explore about why we get married when we don't really have to anymore and what it says about us and what it says about us as human beings, as people in love, as feminists. And again, that, and also the other interesting thing about getting married is it's like Christmas, right? So all of the family has to come together and it has to be a good time. There's this enormous pressure for it to be a great day and for everyone to be happy and there to be no fights. But you're bringing back siblings who are adults now, you're bringing back old friends, you're going back to your parents' house and it's all just kindling for chaos so that was the other i thought that it, it could be a very funny setup as well a lot of these ideas obviously inform some of the attitudes of the individual characters you know poppy who is the more aggressive sister shall we say but she raises the idea of you're being a very good feminist or are you still being a good feminist so you seem to have dotted these attitudes through each of them was it particularly difficult to insinuate yourself into these individual characters and make them still sound unique well, no, because there were only little bits of what I think in there. And I think that every fiction writer does extrapolate from their own experiences to a degree. And it may only be a little small thing or it may be you're basically just fi fictionalising true events as they happen. So, I, yeah, I think a writer extrapolates themselves in their books. And so it wasn't too difficult to put in my own conflicting thoughts and conversations that I'd had with my friends to dot them through these characters and still keep them the characters true to themselves. You use this book, as you've said, to go and ask people why they got married. So what were some of the feedback, especially from gay friends? I mean, you're, you're a journalist who has covered the, the issue of gay marriage over the last couple of years very extensively. So how did that inform your opinions in writing the book, but also your own opinions about getting married? Well, one of the reasons that I did get married, I, my best friend is a lesbian and we've been friends since we were 11 years old. For a very long time now and she got married when we were about 25 and I had thought until then that I wouldn't get married until same-sex marriage was legal and then and when she got married it was almost like permission I just thought it was so cool she had a massive wedding it obviously wasn't legal but she had this big wedding the same party beautiful ceremony great reception it was just an awesome weekend away and once she did it, I thought, I thought it was very cool and very radical in its own way that they were doing this little F you to the government, like we don't care if it's legal or not, we're still going to have this great celebration of our love. So after she did that, that made me much more open to the idea of marriage because I thought, well, she, you know, my, my best friend's already, is gay and she already got married, so maybe it would be okay if I did as well. Uh, but the responses from my queer friends when I asked them why they got married were really interesting. I had uh, the most common response, and it's, it's a little bit sad in a way. The most common response was, I want everyone to know that my relationship is just as valid as their heterosexual ones and that my love is, love is the same as, their, as theirs and I want it to be recognised in that way. How did the, the book form around you during this time? You, know, you, you were very, let's put it very simply, you were very busy being pregnant. <laughs> you just got married. You know, this, this, the birth of the book, the birth of your child all seemed to come at once. So, so what's the writing process? How long did it take you to pull this all together and then to try and get it into the hands of a publisher? Because you were doing copy edits a week after your child was born. 
Yeah, I was. I call my baby in my book, my 2017 projects. <laughs> <laughs> I started writing the book before I was pregnant, but I knew that I might be getting pregnant. You, you know, like I know how the birds and bees work, right? Right. <laughs> so I knew it was a possibility that I was going to get pregnant. And I think that that was part of my motivation. I'd always wanted to write a book. This idea had been swimming around my head for a few years. And I thought, you know, I might be pregnant soon. And then after, when I have a baby, it's going to be really hectic, probably a while before I can write or come to a project like this. So I better do this now. I better get moving. I started writing the book in September 2016. I got pregnant in March 2017. And I think I'd written about uh, 20,000 words by then. And then I thought, you know, right, I'm pregnant. I, re I really got to get this ball rolling. And it was actually really, really difficult. I didn't have – my morning sickness wasn't too bad. I did have it uh, all day sickness. It's really not morning sickness. It's at any time. But what I found most difficult in my pregnancy was the bone-crushing fatigue. I was just so tired all the time, no matter what I did or how much I slept. But I ended up finishing a first draft that was 50,000 words – by July and so what I was like four months pregnant and I was incredibly lucky and my agent sometimes tells me not to tell this story because I will just make other writers hate me but I read somewhere the way that you should um, get an agent I knew I had to get an agent publishers basically will not look at your manuscript without an agent so I looked at a book that I liked and um, saw the name of my agent in the acknowledgements, Jeanne Rickmans, her name is, and I Googled her and luckily it didn't come up, the Cameron's management page didn't come up because on that page it said they were not accepting submissions. And if I'd seen that, I wouldn't have sent it to her, but instead of LinkedIn of all things came up. And I emailed her on LinkedIn with a brief synopsis and a pitch and who I was. She rang me two hours later, said, this sounds really interesting, please send me the book. Uh, I sent her this 50,000-word draft and she rang me two days later. She hadn't finished the book and she said, I want to sign you. And, and, and she is phenomenal. She is amazing. Without her, none of this would have happened. She, so that was in July and she had me a book deal by September. And then and she knew I went into, I didn't tell her I was pregnant over the phone. I went in for my meeting and it was pretty obvious I was pregnant. And, uh, and she was cool about it and very supportive and she said it was going to be fine. She wasn't phased at all. And then um, I got my book deal and so we made the deadline for my structural edit, November 28. My baby was due December 14. <laughs> I was so pregnant. So I finished my structural edit in six weeks. I wrote 20,000 more words after September, between September and October, did my structural edit. My next deadline was a week after my baby was due. My baby was born the day after his due date. And, yeah, I, my mum was staying with me and I'd get up in the morning, feed the baby, the baby would go to sleep. They sleep a lot in those first couple of weeks. And I would sit there on my computer finishing the edits bit by bit and I met every deadline. So I met the deadline for the structural edit when the baby was due, met the deadline for the edits the week after he was due and met the final deadline when he was six weeks old. And you, and you even met the deadline for when he was due as well. Yeah, pretty much. He was almost bang on time. When I was doing my structural edit, I used to say to him, buddy, buddy, you can't come yet. Stay in, stay in, stay in. And as soon as the, the structural edit was in, I was, I was there begging, please come out. Please come out. I'm so over this. Get out of me. Get out of me. <laughs> but, Bridie, you're not an unknown entity. You've been writing since about 2006 and you've actually previously, you've even earned some notoriety 
by going viral back around 2013, which it was associated with a book launch, which was the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's book launch and some of the claims he made um, at the time of his Battle Lines book. And you went viral for hashtag calm down bridey. <laughs> yeah, I did. That was a hectic time. I'd only been at The Guardian three months then and he had claimed expenses. When he was um, touring his book Battle Lines, he had claimed parliamentary expenses, Comcast, to and from the events, but that's not a political event, is it? It's personal um, promotion. And so he was getting questioned about it and we weren't really satisfied with the answers he'd given the day before. So he was in Sydney holding a press conference, so I went down. I hammered him a little bit, but I don't think it was too drastic. And he said, said calm down. And it just went nuts. People saw it on Twitter like, did he just tell a female journalist to calm down? And then someone created the hashtag calm down Bridie as a joke, I think, at the Guardian and then just went nuts. And it was written up in the Daily Telegraph. It was, uh, it was put on the Guardian. And, yeah, it, it went quite insane. Andrew Bolt wrote about me. And, um, and I ended up having to just close my Twitter down. And, you know, I was a real hero to some people who thought that I had bullied him, which I hadn't. And I was a real villain to other people who thought that I had bullied him, which I had, and I just asked him questions. <laughs> you've followed the political process for the last couple of years when you, while you've been with The Guardian. Where are you with the political process and their thoughts on millennial Australia at the moment? I think the political process is failing us. It's definitely failing millennials, but beyond millennials, it's failing a lot of people. It's failing poor retirees, it's failing the homeless, it's failing anyone who's on welfare, and it's been just so stagnant for, what is it, 2018? I think that the whole political process has been really stagnant since 2000. I think that, well, and this isn't a unique um, view, but I think all the spoils of the mining boom were completely wasted, and we've, we've stagnated completely on things like climate change and energy policy. And it's really scary. You know, I talked earlier about getting married being a supreme act of optimism. Having a baby is beyond a supreme act of optimism because I just look at my kid now and I wonder what kind of world he's going to grow up in. How is, where is he going to live? What shelter is he going to have? Where is he going to work? You know, it's hard for millennials now, but I can't see it getting any easier for the next generation either. And so I think that at the moment, our politics and our politicians are failing us. And that's why people are turning to such extreme what they see as solutions such as Trump and Brexit and things like that because I think that most people do know it's failing but they don't know what the solution is or they're not being offered a proper solution by our politicians. Do you think better questions need to be asked of them? I don't think it's about questions. I think better policy needs to be made. And But I also think obviously the media cycle plays a role in this and the 24-hour media cycle, you know, the media is not completely blameless in this and it's a very powerful institution. I think that journalists do work to hold politicians to account, but I think there's just such short attention spans these days as well. You know, a big policy announcement is made and, I, you know, 20 years ago it was easier to have that policy sort of dominate the front pages for a week or two or even a month, spend the time explaining the policy, focus on the policy. And these days, you know, a policy announcement is made in the morning and by the afternoon the politicians, the PM's office is being rung by journalists saying, what have you got for me next? What have you got for me next? You know, the, the news cycle moves incredibly quickly, but I don't think that that's a good enough excuse for not creating decent policy. That is what their job is and they should be doing their job. 
Back in 2006, you were asked by the Australian, as a young, uh, I think, 17, 18-year-old, what you would be doing in 2038. And at that time, you suggested that you would be perhaps working in policy, thus my question to you. And you also said that you do expect, though, that politicians will still be reading Machiavelli and <laughs> that we won't still be able to rely on them. The Democrats will be dead, they'll be gone, the Greens will have more power. Did so, I say that? Do you remember this at all? I remember, I remember exactly the interview, but I didn't know that I said the Democrats would be gone and the Greens would have more power. Wow, I was quite brilliant, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I probably just heard someone else say that and I was repeating it as my own opinions as I did when I was a teenager. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. A lot of this is, seems to have, actually seems to be coming true. And it also raises the issue of climate change. And you said, my generation will be the generation to remove coal. We will be the ones who invest in the future. So that's why I'm intrigued by when you look at the future now in your 30s, um, what are the hopes and dreams? What do you think is being achieved from a media perspective, from a political landscape? I think that my generation, but also the next generation, is, you know, people, because people think of millennials and they think millennials as 21 year olds. That's not millennials. Millennials are now in their mid 30s. They're entering their 30s. So, and there's been a strong activism streak in millennials. And I think it has made a difference. You know, Australia, we got marriage equality very late compared to other nations, but we still wouldn't have it if it wasn't for activism. It, this, that was a policy change that was born completely from activism. I think millennials are really good at activism. And I think the next generation is even better. And that's where the change is going to be made. I do have hope for better climate and energy policy in the future. And I think, I think it can work, but you know, my generation isn't in power yet. It's still, they're activists obviously, but it's still boomers who are in charge and it's still boomers who are politicians. So we have to wait a while more for that change as well. Mm. Yeah, the book itself looks about the expectations, the hopes, the failings of millennials. And it looks at everything from their relationships to each other to their relationships with their boomer parents. It's a really tortured family, right? It's really tortured. And at times they're not very nice at all. So what did you hope to achieve by putting this family on display in their relationships? It is a tortured family. It's okay. You can say they're horrible people. They are horrible <laughs> people, which is what I loved writing about because, you know, I wanted to write, um, I think it's easy to write likable characters. I wanted to write horrible characters that were still compelling and that people still cared about to a degree. Uh, and what I hope to achieve with it is I just wanted to examine relationships between people. That is what I truly love and what I'm truly interested in and have been forever, how we all relate to each other and relationships between siblings, particularly adult siblings, how they evolve and relationships between parents and their children as their parents grow older and children and their parents. Because I think that as you become older, you become a lot more forgiving of your parents, but they're still the most annoying people in the world. And I think for parents, it can be difficult for them. You know, you spend so many years looking after and caring for the, your kid from when they're a completely helpless little bead, totally and utterly relying on you until they're making their own decisions and going out into the world. And I can totally understand the difficulty in letting go of being in charge of your kid as they enter adulthood. And I totally understand why there's a lag for so many people. And I find that lag really interesting where your child is a fully formed adult, 28 years old, for example, but you still feel compelled to tell them what to do and still want them to listen to you. And so those are all the things that I wanted to explore and I find it endlessly fascinating. The mother in the book, which is Rachel, who is quite a deplorable character at times, but she, she makes note of this by saying that just as your children grow to an age where they become interesting, they're not interested in talking to you anymore. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. And it, the, the reactions to Rachel have been really interesting. There are some people who have said, what a horrible, horrible woman, horrible mother. I don't think she's a horrible woman or a horrible mother. I think the problem is Rachel loves her children too much. Well, she does love them all equally, even if she at times suggests to some of the kids that she loves one over the top of the other. Um, but that does also seem to be a very matriarchal controlling mechanism. And she she seems to miss them because they've all flown the nest, essentially. And this is, as you said at the very beginning of, the, of our conversation, the wedding brings people back together. And and this is also that moment where we start to try and associate elements of the book with your with the author's personal life, which is you grew up in Grafton, so that's that's regional New South Wales. This is set in a regional town. This brings a family of three sisters and a brother all back together. You have two other sisters and a brother as well. And it's from a, a separated family as well. So, you know, there is there are these aspects that you start to steal, see parts of the author's life stolen because it sets up the narrative for them. Do you get along with your family, though, Bridie? That's the question that has to be asked after reading this. <laughs> my family are my favourite people in the world. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> the reason that I have those in the book, you know, a brother and three sisters and separated parents, my parents get along very, very well, by the way. But um, the reason that I have those in the book is because those are dynamics that I understand. I know what the dynamic between one brother and three sisters is, and I know what the dynamic between children of separated parents are, but it's also it's not an incredibly unique situation. And loads of my friends, their parents are broken up as well. And so um, it's the, it, it puts another layer and another level to obviously familiar relations and how you're relating to your parents because you don't get to relate to them just as one entity anymore. But yeah, the reason I had those dynamics is because I understand them. I felt that I could write about them really well, but it's not really based on my family or if it is, it's sort of elements of the personalities of my sisters in particular and myself, but, you know, notched up to 50,000. They were really horrible people, basically. <laughs> well, there are, there are nice notes about the rituals of families and the rituals of friends. Um, such as being able to identify the different footsteps of different people in the house. When you've grown up with someone, you can tell the difference between your brother and which sister and, and which you know adult is walking down the corridor towards you without having, having to hear them say anything. And it's even, the book goes a bit further, which is to look at the relationship between women specifically and those rituals of female friendship as well. And that can be the, the, the use of makeup. It can be used, the use of alcohol between friends that that's a, I think you've referred to it before as that's a language that women share together as well. Yeah, and I really, I do believe that there is a, a specific language between women because we know what it's like for each other to be out in the world and we experience the world in such a different way to how men experience it. And, you know, that I have such profound friendships and relationships with men and I know men who have such profound relationships with each other but the relationships that I know most well are the relationships between women, being a woman myself. And I think there's a certain in intimacy in our relationships, as I said, to, that comes from knowing how each other experiences the world without having to spell it out all the time, how we probably walk around in a bit more fear than the average man would, but also the way that we're judged, the way that we judge each other. I think that there's a certain competitive edge to female relationships as well. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think that plays into it as well and there's just an endless endless realm of things to explore in it and I tried to I tried to get into it in the book and I hope I achieved that. The women themselves are very very strong very bold characters they're all uniquely defined and the fiance in the book Dylan 
is actually painted almost as a very soft, um, weaker character compared to the others because it almost feels like he just he cannot belong within this den of wolves that are circling him as the story goes on and on. And you're terrified for almost for this poor young man because it's almost that niceness is a weakness. Was that very deliberate? I didn't want niceness to be a weakness. I wanted to. I wanted it to be one of his strengths. And I think it, I think it would be seen that way by some people, but it is. This is very much a book about women. You know, it's it's about the lead up to a wedding, but it's a book about female best friends. It's a book about sisters. It's a book about mother and daughters, and definitely the domineering characters in this are women. And that's slightly inspired by books like Pride and Prejudice, where the men are almost just background characters in the in the drama that is the women's lives. Yeah, and they're, and they're very much taking control of the, their own life direction as well. They, you know, so much of those books, especially the, the Austen era, they don't need the man. And so much of it's about rejecting to say, I'm going to be my own self. I'm going to have a sense of purpose and establish themselves away from that. And then that seems to be what Claudia is really struggling with, which is, do I need to get married or why am I getting married? Because there's Poppy, her sister, who is a, a lesbian and doesn't seem to want or need anybody. Then you have Nora, who has lost a man and is in a terrible state of affairs, really, as she tries to work through that. So the women need each other more than they need Absolutely, others. and they rely on each other and open up to each other much more than they do the men. But also I think that their relationships with each other are more emotional and more volatile than their relationships with the men in their life as well. It seems like the primary relationships in the book do seem to be not seem to be, are ah, the primary relationships in this book are between the women. The relationships with the men are very much secondary. Yeah, I, there's a ferocity, ferocity to each of these women, though, as well, because as you read the books, you also hear about the history of some of the fights that these sisters have had. Like, these are, these are pull, knock down, drag out hair, ripped out of heads kind of fights. I mean, this is really tough. <laughs> yeah, and I, I put those fights in those references in because women can be just as physical as men you know when we when we think of high school and growing up we think of boys brawling and you know that awful saying boys will be boys but boys fighting each other in the schoolyard or, or brothers fighting each other it's not a good thing to be doing it's not a particularly healthy thing but women are just as capable of that and women are just as physical as men are particularly when they're growing up before the societal societal expectations fully get to them about how they should be behaving but I think the women in this book really don't care that much about societal expectations. <laughs> you offset a lot of this uh, with humour throughout. There's a lot of biting humour between the, the, the sisters and how they engage. And that, again, pulls back, or well, at least pull back for me, to the Austen pieces, which is that it's the language they use to connect and also to hurt each other. So it can be biting humour, but it's very funny at times. How important was that to you? I think it's what saves the book. So these, these characters are mostly horrible people, but I want, I want people to be able to relate to them and be compelled by them. But also I think this book would be quite sad if it wasn't for the humour. And, so, and that's why it had, to be, it had to be funny as well because I think that's how I keep the reader drawn in, but it's also how I keep the reader from walking away at the end of it just feeling terrible. What was the feedback from some of your first readers? So my... <laughs> My first reader was my husband and he still hasn't finished. <laughs> <laughs> and when when the actual book arrived, bound, he sat down and started reading and he looked up after five pages and said, this is really good. This is really funny. <laughs> like, he was surprised. 
Um, my uh, other first readers were my sisters, two of my sisters, and they loved it. They thought it was so great. They thought it was so funny and so gripping. And I thought that was a really good sign that they loved it because I was a little bit worried that they would be hurt by this book, that they would wrongly, wrongly interpret this book and think that I was actually writing about them. But no, they saw straight away that right. while there were elements of them and now I wasn't actually writing about them. And so they, they were thrilled with it, which made me feel very confident. And my aunt was one of my first readers and she read it and said to me, um, I asked her what she thought of it and she said, yeah, it's got potential. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, but, which is good. That, that's what I need. I need to be kept down to earth by my family. <laughs> They're obviously doing a very good job at that. <laughs> Goodness me. You, your entire career has been driven by writing. So, you know, you finished, you finished high school and were, was awarded a scholarship to Bond University with the Gold Coast Bulletin in 2006. Your first piece, though, was published prior to joining the Gold Coast Bulletin, which was with the Sydney Morning Herald, which was for the Heckler section, which you wrote about the, the nature of the HSC and celebration, forcing young people to get drunk constantly. What provoked you to be a writer? What made you decide this is where I want to go? I just love books. I've always loved reading. I was that kid, um, you know, getting in serious trouble from my father because I was caught at one o'clock in the morning still reading my book. Uh, I I just loved him. I I didn't learn to read until I was in kindergarten. I wasn't a particularly early reader, but once I started reading, I absolutely tore through the books. And I loved what an escape it was. I loved how entertaining it was. Uh, I loved the insights into human and human relationships from books. So I've just always read everything. And I guess um, when I was in primary school, I had two very encouraging teachers and I realised that maybe I could write. But I I didn't actually think that I would make a career out of writing until I won that scholarship. I hadn't actually applied for any journalism degrees because I thought it would be too difficult to get into. And also as a kid from the country, you know, I had to move to the city for university and pay my own rent and I knew that I'd have to get a job while I was at uni and I just thought I wouldn't be able to intern for free. I just thought journalism was beyond my reach. So most of the things I applied for were to do with policy, international relations and economic policy. And uh, the only journalism course I applied for was this scholarship and I got it. And how lucky am I? I've been writing ever since. And so did that open up a whole new world to you? Because you, you started following everything from car crashes to exclusive parties to just the nature of the Gold Coast being the Gold Coast itself. What did you learn and what did you get from those early years of journalism? Oh, my God, it was brilliant. I loved it. I loved covering the Gold Coast and I loved being a cadet on the Gold Coast. And I truly believed that I was at the centre of the world when I was in that newsroom. Uh, I learned so much. I, I always loved talking to people and... I learned that as a journalist, you just get this license to ask people any question you want, which in any other scenario would be considered rude. I did learn a lot as well. I, when I, I had to cover those car crashes, you know, I saw my first dead body. I had to do death knocks, which were horrible, and which I do disagree with as a, as a tenant of journalism. And I guess what I learned on the Gold Coast is I really grew up and started to become the adult that I ended up being. I think I would have been a completely different person if I wasn't a cadet at the Gold Coast Bulletin. You finished the cadetship in 2011. You moved then to the Brisbane Times. So you've been working in Broadchase, you're working in tabloids. After your time at the Brisbane Times, though, a couple of years later, I think it's 2013, you make the move to Sydney, which is to join The Guardian, which is go completely online in that space. What was it that drove you to come to Sydney and join The Guardian? 
I always wanted to live in Sydney. From when I was a teenager, Sydney was my dream town. This is where I would have moved straight after school if I could have, but I basically couldn't afford it and got the scholarship on the Gold Coast anyway. And The Guardian, I grew grew up with my father reading The Guardian. Despite us being in Grafton, he would read The Guardian and refer to it as his favourite newspaper. My mother's from Northern Ireland and I lived in Ireland a a few times when I was younger and went to school there. And it was it was seen as a as a revered newspaper. It's one of the only English newspapers to apologise for their coverage of Bloody Sunday, which makes them okay in Northern Ireland despite being an English company. And I could not believe the opportunity when it came up that they were moving to Australia and they they advertised for a position. The editor Kath Viner, who was the launch editor of Guardian Australia, she's now the editor for the entire Guardian, and she still has an email that I sent her when I found out they were launching saying. Please give me a job. I will even make Vegemite sandwiches for David Ma. I will do anything. <laughs> just let me work for you. What was that move like for you, though? Because you're going from Brisbane, which is an excitable regional town in many ways. You know, it's not. No, it's exactly a regional town, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be polite. Sorry to everyone living in Brisbane. But what's it like when you come to Sydney and suddenly you are now? You're on the political tour, you're running around, you're chasing prime ministers, you're demanding answers on behalf of The Guardian. You have that new weight of an established international paper behind you. Does it change who you are as a journalist or the the questions you ask or how hard you work? It doesn't change how hard you work. I I still work just as hard as I did on the Gold Coast Bulletin as a cadet, but I certainly learned a lot in a very, very short amount of time. And I was working at that point with some of the best journalists in the country. So when I was in Brisbane, we had a fantastic team and I will never have that experience again that I had at the Brisbane Times where I worked with a very young team but an incredibly talented team and people who have moved on to be at the top of their game. You know, one's an ABC presenter in Brisbane, another became a political reporter for The Guardian in the press gallery in Canberra and he now lives in Tokyo. Another went to the top at the Sydney Morning Herald and now works at the ABC. You know, I would just never work with people this talented again at the very beginning of their career. So it was incredibly exciting at the Brisbane Times. And I did learn a lot there. But then I came to The Guardian. I was working with Kath Viner, you know, deputy editor of The Guardian, the best newspaper in England. I was working with Lenore Taylor, who was our political editor, and who I think even after three years of working with her, I would still pinch myself and think, that's Lenore Taylor. She knows my name. It's been, it's been five years and I still think, she knows my name. David Marr, I learned from him. Catherine Murphy. You know, it was it just kicked everything up eight more levels and it did change me as a journalist. It made me a lot more thoughtful as a journalist. Um, I learned a lot actually from listening to Murph and Lenore on the phones. You know, they don't necessarily have to be giving you direct lessons. I would listen to how they spoke to their contacts and the kind of questions they asked and I was working in the office with them. And so, yeah, it was like a whole other education that, you know, I had this education over six years as a journalist already and it was this whole other education but squeezed into one year and I just kept learning and learning and learning. What do you mean by it made you a more thoughtful journalist? Well, there was such a cracking pace at the Gold Coast Bulletin. You know, when you're meeting a newspaper deadline, you have to get everything done by a certain time. It's in the paper the next day and you move on to the next story and then you move on to the next story. You know, there's not a lot of deep policy analysis there. It was a great newspaper but especially I was working mostly as a police reporter there, so you're chasing the scanner, so it's a different crime every day. And at the Brisbane Times, we had one political reporter and I would help him out a bit, and he was an excellent, excellent political reporter, but still it was the two of us basically 
covering politics for the whole of Queensland, really him and me just stepping in to help him sometimes. And so when I learnt from people like Murph and Lenore and Kath, they just asked more in-depth questions, more thoughtful questions. I thought that they just really understood a policy and they knew the context of things. They could go back and say, oh, well, 15 years ago they said this and this is what happened, so how is this different from then or how does that relate to them? There was just a huge historical knowledge there as well. So they really taught me to try to step back a little bit further and see an even bigger picture than what is immediately in front of you. Where do you want to take your journalism now? I honestly have no idea. I thought that I wanted to be, I wanted to be editor of The Guardian, but I definitely don't want to be editor of The Guardian after working so closely with editor of The Guardian because it's so much work. I would just like to keep writing for as long as I possibly can keep writing. I think that's my goal for the moment. And does that include more books? Yeah, for sure. I'd love to write another book. You know, I think I'm going to, the next book I write, I think I'm going to try and make it a bit happier. Is that because the writing is difficult when it's all quite dour at times? And I should, it should be clear, it's not a dour book at all. They are just, at times, difficult people to love. It wasn't a difficult book to write, but I think with everything going on in the world at the moment, I would just like to write a really happy, uplifting story. I think we had a golden era of romantic comedies at the end of the, at the, end of the 90s and the beginning of the noughties, and I don't think there's been particularly great romantic comedies in the past few years. And so I think that that's my next goal, just to write something for all the women in their late 20s and early 30s, for the men as well if they want it. It'll just make you feel good at the end of it. Well, Brady, that sounds very promising. I mean, if, if marriage is meant to be an act of supreme optimism, as is having a child, then a second book sounds like it should be one as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brady, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been fascinating to talk to you. I really appreciate the time. My pleasure. And Bridie's book, The Way Things Should Be, is available now in stores and online. You can find Bridie Jabor in The Guardian Australian on a daily basis and also on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter as well, at ConversationsWW and on Facebook. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which would be greatly appreciated as that helps people to find the show. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.